So that is a copyright license. The copyright license is issued by the copyright owner to somebody else to make copies, distribute the copies, communicate what I have authored. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the second season. On this episode, we're going to talk about how our actions can lead to implied copyright licenses, meaning that we can be authorizing someone else to use our copyright content without realizing it. Let's welcome our guest. Yeah, my name is Purna Mysore. Um, I am from India originally. Um, that's where I did my um, basic law degree as well. And then um, currently I am a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Oxford Law Faculty. Um, and I'm also a junior research fellow at uh, the Queen's College. Previously, I had uh, been a practitioner of law and moved over to becoming an academic in the past eight years. And my research is on intellectual property law, but I look at more of the intersection between intellectual property law and other private law subjects like contract law, court law, um, property law, and things and, and subjects of that nature. And what took you to start working and researching on this area on IP? So when I was doing my undergraduate degree, our professor um, at uh, my Indian uh, Law University, it's National Law School of India, uh, our professor was advising the government of India um, at that time. And uh, he had been looking for research assistants. Um, to help him put together a paper for the government of India. And, the, and that was when he looked around in the class and uh, a few hands went up and I put up my hand as well, thinking that this sounds like an interesting thing to do. And uh, that got me deeper and deeper into IP research. So at that time, he was advising the government on patent law because Indian patent law was not TRIPS compliant. And uh, he had been um, asking the government to ask for more time to the WTO panel. Um, so, you know, getting all those issues in, into an undergraduate's head where everything that you say, everything you research, everything you write for your professor could have an impact for a country that size, it, it, it does make you wonder yeah, the, the power of law. So that, that was what really got me interested in how, um, you know, technology and law at that intersection, you had that, that beautiful subject, which is intellectual property law. So that was the reason I went closer and closer to the subject. And uh, true enough, in my uh, master's program, I had the opportunity to write an extended essay where a dissertation on what was uh, a very current topic at that time, um, which was on biotechnology and patenting. Um, and that extended essay, again, got me closer to um, how sovereign states can get involved in um, some of these really cutting-edge technology issues and how that could, um, in turn, have such an impact on livelihoods of just thousands of farmers. So that was uh, another uh, one of the turning points where I felt very deeply engaged in intellectual property 
as a subject. And then when I moved to Hong Kong, um, because already I had expressed so much interest in intellectual property, I was uh, hired into an intellectual property firm. And that began my career in practice of intellectual property, which went on for almost uh, 10 years um, and all of that in Hong Kong. Um, and during that time, I also had the privilege of uh, being a, an in-house counsel for a biotechnology company as well. Um, so it was a mix of uh, intellectual property areas, different areas, including trademarks and patents, um, to a lesser extent on copyright, um, because Hong Kong being a small jurisdiction, it didn't have that much of a need for advisory work on um, uh, copyright law. So I honed my skills in intellectual property law, got deeper and deeper engaged in in this area and the beauty of Hong Kong being you know, the, the hub for the region, you would get exposed to legal systems around that area in China and um, the, the surrounding areas like Malaysia, Indonesia. You, you just get to know what the legal systems in different countries are like. So that was uh, a hugely um, rewarding experience and enriching experience for me. And this is how you know I got drawn into um, intellectual property law in, initially quite by accident, but more by design later on. And I kind of uh, dug myself deeper into this area. And then uh, at some point, I felt the subject is so beautiful. The subject is, is so given to research. If I didn't take the chance to say enough for practice and go and do research full time, I probably was going to regret. So at some point, I decided um, I was not going to practice, be, be in practice anymore. And I um, started applying for a PhD program. Um, and I got accepted in Oxford. And uh, um, I came here to uh, do my doctorate. Um, by that time, I had had some amount of exposure to practice of trademark and patent. And copyright was one area where I knew there were just so many interesting research questions to be raised, but I hadn't had the opportunity to raise them or answer them in my practice. So I decided to pick a topic in copyright law, and which is what brought me to this particular um, area of research for my doctorate. That's a quite a journey from just raising your hand in a classroom, yeah. working with the World Trade Organization, the TRIPS Agreement, uh, for you that don't necessarily know, when a country joins the WTO, it accepts also all the implications regarding the different treaties that compose the WTO. And one of them is only for intellectual property. And that one has minimal standards that all the countries or the governments they need to meet in order to be compliant. And that was what you were working with. So to make sure that India was compliant with the WTO standards on IP. That's right. That's right. So um, if, if I remember it right at that time, Indian patent system had only a process patent. We didn't recognize product patent, which was a huge thing. I mean, that, that was one of the reasons why India had a successful generic pharmaceuticals being developed in the country. So our industry or uh, genetics was doing very well. And the fear was that if the patent laws were changed, then so many of the, these generics um, were, were going to suffer. And India's competitive advantage as a producer of generic uh, medicines 
was going to be put at risk. So there were lots of policy issues, there were lots of legal issues that we needed to grapple with. And uh, that was a wonderful time to get into IP in a way, Mm -hmm. um, because IP was going to be part and parcel of trade. It, it just was, it, it wasn't going to be anything that we could turn our back on. We had to turn it to our advantage, change our laws in a way that uh, worked for the world, worked for us. And, and that was where the challenge was. Yeah, I mean, sounds um, like a great trajectory. So yeah. from there, from there in India, then you moved to Hong Kong and then you, you feel the, the urge of mastering IP better in a different um, optic, in the research optic. So you you went to the UK and finally settled in Oxford, at least for now. Yes, at least for now. That's <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that sounds um, like a beautiful background. And so what took you to write your book? Because today we're going to discuss mainly your book, In-Flight Licenses in Copyright Law. Um, yeah. Why uh, why In-Flight Licenses in Copyright Law? What, what led you to write this book? Where shall I start? Okay, so um, when I first was looking around for what it was that I really wanted to consider working on in copyright law, um, this was around 2012, 2013. Um, the one thing that the world was still grappling with, um, you know, as opposed to artificial intelligence having become just such a huge topic at this time and Uh, in 2020s are probably all going to be hijacked by artificial intelligence and IP, that sort of a consequence. But at that time, you know, turn of the century, so 2000s up to 2010, 11, 12, internet and copyright was a huge thing. Um, Of course, in in the year 2000, 2001, Napster and all of those had become a big uh, issue. And then in 2010, 11, Around that time, we had heard just so much about the record companies having lost such a huge amount of profit because of the infringement that was happening on the internet. So um, choosing any copyright topic around that time in 2012-13 was going to be difficult without addressing internet. You had to somehow make your topic in copyright be relevant to the contemporary issues that we were facing at that time. Of course, I'm not saying that these issues are resolved by any means, but um, at least an attempt had to be made to choose something that was very current at that time. So um, when I was speaking to many experts around the world, um, as to what they thought was a an interesting, engaging area to work in copyright law, implied licenses just popped up. And uh, it had just so happened that uh, in the US, there had been a case in, I believe, 2006 or seven it was, um, where Google had been sued by um, this individual. And uh, that case, which was uh, the court of District Court of Nevada, they had applied implied license. And that case had become um, quite a talked about case in many other jurisdictions as well, because this was just something so new that uh, that the lawyers had put forward in that case. And the judge had meaningfully engaged in um, implied license to deal with the internet um, related copyright infringement. 
So um, that got me deeper into this topic. And I thought um, it would be interesting to write a proposal on this. And I started researching a little bit more about it. And I realized that implied license was also something that uh, the UK courts had been uh, trying to grapple with. So um, I wrote the proposal and got accepted in Oxford. And when I started writing my um, doctoral thesis, very soon it became clear to me that um, there was there was a need for implied licenses to be properly studied, systematically and methodically um, written about and consolidated everything that had been already done about this in different jurisdictions, you know, bits and pieces of work that had happened in different countries. All of those had to be brought together in one book um, with, with an analytical clarity. Um, and I, I saw that as an opportunity to develop my doctoral thesis in the form of a book. And uh, that's how, you know, once I handed in my thesis in 2017, um, I sat down to putting the proposal for Oxford University Press and then sitting down to actually write the book. Actually, the book is very different from my thesis, um, different in the sense it, it says a lot more in my book than it does in my thesis. And uh, I had the opportunity to actually also present my research to um, many, many other audiences across the world. Um, so I got a lot of feedback from many, many uh, experts around the world. And uh, having enriched my research and my um, debate on different uh, arguments in this area, I decided to sit down to consolidate it in the form of this book. So, yeah, that was the journey um, with the book from uh, my doctoral thesis to the, um, to the, 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 the book in the printed version that I see in front of me now. And how is implied license different from other license in copyright? Can you tell us the definition yeah. of each and how they are different from each other? So let me first start by talking about licenses. Now, license is a very common word that we use in our ordinary language. Um, you know, you, you could be talking about driver's license, uh, which the government issues, or you could be talking about building license when you take a planning permission from the council to, to build something. So essentially what a license does in the legal sense of the term is that license is what allows you to do something which you would otherwise not have the ability to do. So it is a permission in the sense that you know, if you take the driving license example, you're not allowed to drive a motor vehicle on the road without having a license. So essentially, a license turns what you cannot do into what you're permitted to do. So that is the idea of a license, basically, from, from a legal sense of the term. So how does copyright license fit into all of this? Uh, if I'm an author of something, let's say I have uh, written this book, so I'm the author of this book. Um, the, the, the moment I become entitled to copyright in this book, then what it means is that the rest of the world is not allowed to copy what I have written. Of course, there are lots of other rights that I have as well. But essentially what it means is that the rest 
no one else is allowed to copy my book. So that is the duty the rest of the world owes me. So I, as the author, have the ability to change that duty that that person has and allow that person, permit that person to copy my book for a particular reason. So I, when I wrote this book, I gave that permission to Oxford University Press to copy my book and make any number of copies and distribute it across the world. So that was a license I issued to Oxford University Press in relation to this book. So that is a copyright license. The copyright license is issued by the copyright owner to somebody else to make copies, distribute the copies, communicate what I have authored. So if Oxford University Press wanted to have uh, um, this book communicated to the world on the Internet, let's say, um, uh, an audio book being put out on uh, Amazon, then again, uh, they have the permission to do so. So all these permissions are nothing but a copyright license that I have issued them, and they are capable of doing only because I have issued them a license. If I didn't issue them a license, so for example, Cambridge University Press doesn't have my license. So if Cambridge University Press made copies of my book, then they will be liable for copyright infringement. So whoever I license to are the ones who have the permission to copy the book and communicate the book, make copies, distribute copies and things of that nature, which the copyright statute allows them to do. So that's the copyright license. Now, the next step is then making that distinction between an express license and an implied license. Now, what I have issued the Oxford University Press is an express license. An express license is a license which I provide in writing or in some sort of an expression form. So expressed form, like I, I may just say to them in my spoken words that OUP, you have the, the permission to go ahead to copy my book. That is an express license. Or uh, OUP might give me an agreement and say, Purna, why don't you sign this agreement so that we can have an evidence when, you know, if, if we are questioned that you gave me a license, I, we should be able to show something to them. So why don't you sign this written agreement where you say, I have given you the license. So these are all examples of express copyright licenses. So these express copyright licenses are very common. They they are normally negotiated, sometimes not negotiated as well. You know, it could be just in the form of a release form where you just sign to say, I have given it's just a single line license for where it says I'm I'm giving license to my copyright work to so and so. All these take the form of an express license. Now, where does the implied license fit into all of this? Um, For this, I have to just take one step back and say a little bit more about copyright law, which is that, uh, let's say, Leticia is a user of copyright work. She wants to use um, my copyright work, let's say my book. If Leticia wants to make copies of my book, in, in course of her research, if she wanted to quote part of my book, or if she wanted to write a review of my book, she will have what is called a statutory limitation or an exception. So a statutory limitation is what is provided by the copyright legislation itself, which 
forgives her for copying parts of my book because she is writing a criticism or she is writing a review or she is quoting from my book. So all of these are recognized as statutory exceptions. She will not be liable for copyright infringement. So even though she doesn't have a license from me that says she can go ahead to make copies or quote or take extracts from my book, she can still go ahead to do this if the context is uh, such that she is writing a criticism or review or something like that. So there are lots of other exceptions that copyright statute provides as well. So what happens is that users of copyright work only have this sort of a binary situation where they have to either come to me to ask for an, a license from me, or they can engage in some of these statutorily accepted behavior, like writing a criticism or review or um, some of these other exceptions that copyright provides. So if it is not either one of these, either accepted by the law or accepted by me or permitted by me, then whatever they do, which uh, results in making copies of my book, will then become a copyright infringement. So they will become liable toward of copyright infringement, this action of copyright infringement. And therefore, we need some way of bridging this gap. So you, you don't want to have just these extremities where I have to always keep providing permissions to people to use my book or just leave them to the law, law, whatever exception the, the law provides, just leave them to accept those exceptions. Um, because those exceptions in the law, these criticism review, those sort of exceptions are very narrow. Um, in, in most of the countries, they're, they're interpreted narrowly, they're very rigid. So users of copyright work normally don't have the flexibility to be able to use it the way they want to use it if they don't have either of these two courses of action to resort to. And that's why we want to soften the law by thinking about what if they do, if they don't have express license, what if they could have an implied license? Now, how does implied license work? Implied license works in a way that if the express license wasn't provided, even so, there could be circumstances which will lead a court to figure out that under those circumstances, it is possible to say something about the circumstances, something about the conduct of the copyright owner makes them say that there is an implied license. That, that is where the idea of implied license comes into the picture. The idea of being implied is something that's quite... Um, broadly used in law, especially in private law. We have lots of circumstances where we use the idea of what um, something that's implied, even if there is no express conduct to that effect. So the idea is, if we bring, if we import that concept of being implied into copyright law, then possibly we can bring that flexibility into this copyright system and take it away from being so rigid like the way it exists right now. Um, so this is how licenses, express licenses, express copyright licenses, and eventually implied copyright licenses. That's the way you would go through the journey of understanding implied copyright licenses. Thank you for walking us through from license in general terms up until the implied license term. It's very clear the way you picture it and you explain it. 
And what are the basis for this implied license? What should be the elements uh, present yeah. in order to have this kind of license? Yeah, so um, now let, let me just uh, tell you my journey with this, uh, exploring these bases for uh, implying copyright licenses. Uh, like I said, when I came to this topic, when I came to look at the cases where judges had used the logic of implied licenses, what I saw was that there was really no systematic way of understanding implied licenses. For the most part, the judges would just say, oh, if you have, you can just take into account all the circumstances of the case and you will know how to imply a copyright license. And that's not good enough. Obviously, that's what court does anyway, whether it's a copyright case or any case whatsoever. Courts always take into account all the circumstances before they come and come to a conclusion. So what is special about implied licenses and what are the specific circumstances that need to be taken into account before the court can decide um, if it should imply a copyright license. That is the specific question we needed to answer. Um, but the courts didn't have enough in their reasoning for me to figure out what exactly they're doing. So I had to go back and look at other areas of law where, like I said, you know, implied is a concept which private law generally engages in quite regularly. So you will have implied terms in a contract, you will have implied easements, you will have implied trusts. There is a whole host of idea of implied in other areas of private law. Um, so let me give the example of contract law, because that's where I drew my inspiration from. So in contract law, what happens is that um, you and I enter into a contract and we have reduced our contract into writing. So we have a written agreement, which both of us have signed. All of that is hunky-dory, no problem. But let's say a situation arises where um, the, the agreement is incomplete about addressing the specific situation we are in. What happens then? You know, at that time, with the two of us, although we are okay as parties to the contract, neither of us wants to take the initiative to actually change the agreement. Because it works to my advantage, it works to your disadvantage. I don't want the, the agreement to be amended in any way. I'm just going ahead to say, this is it, we're not going to amend it. But you want to amend the agreement to reflect this particular clause. But instead of asking me to amend the agreement expressly, you can go to the court and say, hey, you know, this particular clause is so intuitive that it should have been implied. It's quite clear if you read the agreement, it's quite clear that this term should have been implied into it. And it's very much part of the agreement. This is what the two of us had agreed. Although we didn't write it in so many words, it can be implied from the circumstances. That's what you would say the court should do. The court should imply a term into the agreement. Now, the, the basis on which you would say that in an agreement like this between the two of us is that because the two of us intended for this particular clause to be in the agreement, Although we didn't say it in so many words, it is part of our intention. So common intention between the two parties is the basis for implying this term. But there could also be situations where you could say, if the two of us had been engaged in a particular trade, 
where there are customs in that particular trade. Let's say the two of us are in insurance business, for example. Insurance business has many, many customs that it follows, which are not written in any law, in any statute, or in any of the judicial decisions as well. So it's just a custom which it's in the way people do business. Our agreement is entered into within that context of so many customs. So instead of writing all the customs in the agreement and making it so bulky, the two of us, because both of us are in insurance business, we go ahead with the understanding that both of us know how insurance business works. So let's just let, let's just know that the two of us are entering into this contract within that context. So we don't bother writing all the customs that, that are there in insurance business. So if, if something happens where we have to then dip into the custom rather than an express word in the contract, then we would say we will imply the custom into the contract. So custom becomes the basis or implying a term into the contract. Now, the third example could be where um, you and I are parties to a contract where I have a, an advantage, a bargaining advantage, because I'm a powerful, um, let's say, a powerful uh, film producer, and you are a, an artist who is up and coming, and you don't have the, the kind of bargaining power that I have. So if there is an inherent inequality in bargaining power, what the court does sometimes is that um, if the agreement looks as if the terms are really one-sided, the court will say, as a matter of public policy, this is not quite right. This agreement should have some more terms in it, which will bring the imbalance back on being equal to the contracting party. So what it does is it implies a term into the contract which makes the contract balanced by way of public policy. So public policy becomes the basis on which they imply a term. So I've talked about three different bases. One is the intention of the parties, second one is the custom, and the third one is the public policy. These three bases are the ones that contract law normally takes as the sources on which um, implied terms can be studied within contract law. So how about thinking about the same bases in copyright law as well? So after all, you know, when you think about how parties' conduct is governed, how public and private ordering happens in the society, you could either order your behavior based on agreements you enter into each other, or you could order your behavior based on the customs that surround you, that you become part of, or you could be ordered based on some kind of law and policy that may be imposed on you. So these sources don't change regardless of which area of law you're looking at, whether contract law or you're looking at property law, you look at whatever area of law, these sources remain the same. So it's it's the same thing with copyright law. In copyright law, you can think of one basis as the consent of the copyright owner. So copyright owner might behave in such a way that the consent is 
reflected in his words or his conduct or in the surrounding circumstances. Um, or the second basis could be the custom. So publishing industry is one industry where there are lots of customs, film industry, entertainment industry, there, there are again many, many customs. So all these customs could be the basis for implying a copyright license in that context. Public policy, again, also plays a very important role in copyright law as well. Um, so there, there could be a possibility where the court says there is public policy playing into a particular agreement and therefore a, a copyright license will have to be implied based on public policy. So we can think of the same three bases on which a copyright license can be implied. And that's how I thought if we had these three categories to start off with, whatever case I read of implied license, I may be able to slot them into one of these three categories and then make better sense of how the court is applying its logic and whether there is any orderly way in which we can study the logic of the court, just so that in future, whatever case comes up, we have the um, we, we, we have the reasoning of the historical cases to back us, to tell us how we can predict the way in which implied licenses can be engaged for the cases to come. So that's how these three base, bases are developed. And um, th th that's the way these categorizations um, are helpful in, in understanding the cases on implied licenses. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. So let's say that the conditions are met and yeah. we have ourselves an implied license. Is it possible for the author or the owner of the copyright to revoke this license? Um, that's a very important uh, question uh, because revocability is it's one of those factors which distinguishes these different bases from one to another. Let, let, let me start by looking at the, the first category that I talked about, which is the consent-based uh, implied licenses. So um, again, um, well, before I address revocability, I have to also address one other distinction, which is The, the distinction between bare licenses and contractual licenses. Now, again, you know, the, this might sound like too much of technicality, but without going into too many details, the simple distinction between a bare license and a contractual license is that in a contractual license, there is reciprocity. So I give you something, you give me something, and therefore we have what is called something supported by consideration, mutual undertaking. So I give you my manuscript for you to publish and you pay me royalties for the sale of the book. So that's a contractual license. What is a bare license? Bare license is a situation where you don't have a contract. There is no such reciprocity. So, for example, um, I may scribble a song, the lyrics of a song, and I might just write it on paper. Um, and I might give it to you and say, knowing that you are a singer, I might say, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy for you to compose 
uh, a compose music for this song and uh, sing it in whatever forum you like. So if I just hand you that paper without expecting anything in return for it, either payment or anything else like that, then it's a bare license. I've just given away my copyright work to you, giving you the permission to use it in whatever manner you want. So um, just as a matter of uh, uh, a trivia, one of the cases that I have uh, referred to in my book is a, a case very similar to this, where um, uh, do you, have you heard of this group called UB40? It's a pop group which was quite famous in 70s and 80s, I think. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, 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 it is slightly older. So there, there was this particular song called Don't Break My Heart. Um, I think some of our audiences might be able to recognize the song that I'm talking about. So it was uh, a lady called Deborah Banks who wrote the song and she um, wrote the song on paper. She, I, I believe she typed it, um, not in, on a computer, but typed it on a typewriter. She had two copies. One copy, she gave it to this particular guy um, who was a singer uh, who took it to the uh, UB40 band and claimed it to be his own uh, song. He completely sidelined Deborah Banks and he claimed himself to be the author and a whole litigation ensued. Eventually, Deborah Banks sued the, the band and uh, um, got the uh, um, got the court to rule in favor of her to say that she was the author of it. So if you pick up a UB40 CD today, um, or if you download from iTunes UB40 song, Don't Break My Heart, the credits will have Deborah Banks. Um, it was changed from UB40 being the author. So this was one of those litigation uh, where you know it was a bare license. She didn't enter into any contract. She had just voluntarily given her song to this friend who she thought was a good friend, uh, but the friend deceived her and took the, the, the song away and sold it to UB40 group. Um, so the, the point here is that where you don't have a contract, um, which is in exchange, if you don't receive anything in exchange for what you have given to the other party, then a bare license comes into existence. So when we talk about these three bases, consent, custom, and public policy, you will have to divide each one of these categories into a bare license and contractual license under consent, bare and contractual under uh, custom and bear and contractual on policy. So you end up with having these further categorization. The reason why I'm saying this is because re revocability of a license depends not just on which bases we are talking about, but also it depends on whether you have a contractual or a bear license. So if you have a consent-based bear license where like Deborah Banks, I just wrote the song and handed it to you. Because I have given it to you out of my own volition, just as freely as I have given the song to you, I can take it back anytime, anytime. So uh, Deborah Banks said in that case, she could have taken back the paper from the guy she gave it to um, anytime as she pleased. So that's revoking her license. Anytime she could have, she would have been free to say, stop, I don't want you to use my song, give it back to me, nothing doing, you don't know me anything, I don't know you anything, let's take it back. So that's a very easy way of revoking a bare license. So if it is a consent-based bare license, revocability is not an issue at all. 
revocability is possible at will at any point in time. The copyright owner has the power to give or take at any point in time. But what happens if it was a contractual license? You know, if, if uh, the, the contractual license between me and uh, Oxford University Press, I can't revoke it. Although I voluntarily gave the license to Oxford University Press, it was my consent although it was a consent-based copyright license that I gave to Oxford University Press, by signing the contract and by making it a mutual thing, I have imposed on myself this duty not to revoke it. So although it's a consent-based license, I can't revoke it because of my own doing. What about a custom-based license? Now, the way to understand a custom-based license is that I am not the one consenting. It's the custom, which is the basis on which the permission is given to you. It's not because I voluntarily given the permission to you. So the, the basis of the permission is not me, it's the custom. So I alone don't have the ability to change what the custom says. The customs are what have happened over a very long period of time. That's the way customs come into existence in the first place anyway, that this is a particular trend, the particular uh, practice that keeps growing uh, for several years. And that's the basis on which customs come into existence in the first place. So I, with my uni unilateral act, cannot change the way customs work. So if the custom says you need to have the, the license, if the custom is the basis for you to have the license, I cannot revoke it. And therefore, I don't have the ability to revoke it at will. What about policy? Policy even more so than custom, because public policy is something that is beyond my ability to voluntarily consent or not consent. Public policy is what the law or the court will impose on me. It's always an imposed aspect of this um, permission. And therefore, I will not have the ability to say, no, I take it back. Because it wasn't for me to give in the first place, I can't take it back. It was the law, it was the court which gave it to you. And it is that which forms the basis of the permission that you have. And therefore, I am not at liberty to take it back. All in all, now, if we consolidate this, when is a license revocable? It's only revocable when it is a consent-based fair license, but in all other scenarios, a license, an implied license, which is implied based on any of these other bases, cannot be revoked. Now, um, a related question, although you haven't raised it, a related question that may be asked is, what about if I write an express term in the contract which says that any implied license is overridden? Can you write in your contract in can you draft your contract such a way that no implied license comes into existence? You know, it, it's a trite law that express terms in a contract overwrite implied terms. So it's possible that you negotiate your contract in such a way that there is no ability to imply something else into that contract. So there are no nasty surprises going forward. Everything that the contract says is what is the relationship between us. So it's possible that before entering into contract, I negotiate to say that we will not imply any term into the contract. 
that is a different thing from being able to enter into a contract and later on say, hey, I backtrack and now I revoke the license. So what is ex ante and what is exposed is something that we need to be very clear about. Revocability is always exposed, which, which means that after we have entered into our transaction, one of us wants to say, I revoke whatever I've given you, I go back, let's, let's just call it quits. That's exposed after entering into the transaction. But ex ante, before entering into the transaction, can we enter into a transaction, first of all, in such a way that we customize the terms in such a way that the um, implied terms don't even come into existence? We both agree that we will not have the liberty to put any implied terms into the contract. So that is possible. You can, in advance, say that um, you can't bring any implied terms, but that, that is a very different thing from saying, having entered into whatever transaction we have entered into, then we can go ahead to say whether one of us is able to revoke it. And that sort of revocability is only possible if consent is the basis and if it is the bare license. Thank you for that great answer. So there's no room for the person to take themselves out of this um, license. So either you say there's no revocability, but is it possible if we go to court to ask for something that can take the person out of it? Or is if they go to court, it will be confirm this concept that it is not revocable, the license? Um, so if the court rules in favor of implying a license, then the parties will be stuck with that implied license for the term of the copyright. So copyright is life plus 50 or 70 years, right? Depending on which jurisdiction you're talking about. So in Deborah Banks, they said it was implied license only to the extent that the guy she gave the song to, he should have been the one to sing it because she knew that he was going to sing that song, but he didn't end up singing it. And the, the, the band went ahead to sing that song in so many different ways. So there was only a limited implied license in relation to that song. So what does it mean? So Deborah Banks will be stuck with that implied license for the rest of the term of the contract of copyright for that particular song. But what she can do is she can negotiate new licenses in relation to that song with other parties. So implied licenses, when they're implied, Normally, those implied licenses will be non-exclusive, which means that only in relation to that particular party, that particular transaction, there will be an implied license. But that doesn't stop the copyright owner from providing any other licenses. It's very rare. You know, there, there are some instances where implied licenses have been ex exclusive licenses, but um, that that's very rare and very specific circumstances in which implied licenses will be exclusive licenses. But in a vast majority of cases, implied licenses will be non-exclusive, which essentially leaves the freedom with the copyright owner to be able to issue new licenses and make um, whatever favorable terms that the uh, copyright owner wants to negotiate in relation to those other uh, new licenses that they enter into. But as far as the, the implied licenses are concerned, they are stuck with it. If a court says that a, a license has to be implied, then that is the final of it. They, they won't be able to escape from it 
um, part way through. Well, yes, at least it gives some leeway because if the license is non-exclusive, means that you can freely negotiate with anyone else or even yourself, you can freely use your copyright. Yeah, that's okay. Right. Yeah, that's at least some good news <laughs> in there. Yes. Um, so now let's go to the internet that you mentioned before. Yeah. So how are these implied licenses applicable in the internet? Um, so like I said, when I first came to this topic, um, I, I first saw the, the, the mention of implied license by a court in relation to a case on the internet. So this was appealed against Google. It was a, uh, a U.S. Uh, district court decision where, um, so the simple, very simple, the facts of the case were very simple. Field was a, um, a poet and he had maintained his website uh, where he would post his um, poems and, and he had lots of followers and all of that. Um, so this was 2006, so probably before all of the social media. So he just just had hit his own website where he had the ability to post these uh, poems. The way Google functions is that I'm making it sound more physical than it is. You're, we were talking about cyberspace, so there's no physical robot that goes. But what we have mm-hmm. is Google Bot, which is Google's algorithm, um, Google's robotic algorithm, which travels through the cyberspace and it indexes all the websites. So when we type something, press enter, Google will be able to look at all of its index and match results, which are reflective of the search term that we have entered into. So for this purpose, Google has to make copies of all the websites, the whole of the content that there is on the internet. Um, index, as in, you know, word for word, it has to create these very complex index accessible to its search engine as and when people use the, the, the service. So Google's methodology is to copy all the websites that are available to its um, Google bot. So accordingly, Google's bot um, also copied Field's website where he had his copyright protected works, such as his poems. And uh, Google made copies of it and uh, it made available his website when somebody searched for Field's poems. So Field went to the court saying, um, Google making copies of my work is infringing of my copyright and therefore they should pay me compensation. Um, And Google raised the argument of implied license. Now, how this works is that by the very act of field placing his content on the internet, he has impliedly licensed certain actions to be taken in relation to his work. So those actions would be, for example, when somebody brings Field's website onto their monitor, copies of his work are created also on the monitor because you, you need to have a display copy, right? The, the display copy that you have on your monitor is different from the copy that's saved in the server, in the web server of Google's website. So, and and through the process of transmission of that server, the, the data on the server all the way through to your monitor, 
there may be several copies that are made. So all of these copies and the, the uh, copy that's created on your uh, monitor, all of these need to be somehow legal copies. Because if you don't have legal copies, then everything that you're doing on the internet will become an infringement. So very early on, implied license was put forward as a possible response to copyright infringement on the internet for all the content that exists on the internet because internet's philosophy, internet's very technology was based on making copies of whatever content exists on the internet for it to become transmissible to any part of the world and be available at beck and call of any person who's, uh, who wants to access that content on the internet. Um, so accessibility, bringing that copy onto your monitor, that's one way of saying it's implied license because the moment Field put his content on the internet, he knew or he must have had reason to believe that putting anything on the internet without any access restrictions like um, you know, password protected or whatever else, it would be available to any user in any corner of the world. So that should be within the copyright owner's knowledge. So if Field voluntarily put up his content on the internet, that voluntariness reflects a particular level of implied license in favor of the users of the internet. One of those users is to be able to bring the content on the website onto your monitor. The, the, the second thing is, what about people like Google, the search engines, not just Google, any search engine? What about their ability to copy your website to prepare their own indexes, be it Yahoo, Bing, any other search engine? They all have the same technology whereby they copy the website. Now, Google uh, publicizes these meta tags that um, a website can have which can communicate with the Google bot in saying whether the website should or should not be indexed. So this is a particular extension to the, the web architecture whereby in while designing your website, in creating the code for the website, you can add this meta tag to say, I don't want this page to be indexed. So it's, it's just an extension to a particular software that you write. These meta tags are very widely publicized. So web designers in particular are very well aware of it. And also common people who are in the know of uh, putting, uh, designing websites, they're also meant to be in the know. But you know, by and large, people want their web pages to be accessed by Google because that's the way they can be found on the internet in the first place. So a lot of times people are out there on the internet to take advantage of the possibility of reaching such a large population rather than keeping their copyright work more constrained. So um, what the court said was, that they, that in the cross-examination, it came across that Field actually knew that Google bots would be hovering around wanting to index his website and he could, if he didn't want Google bots to be indexing his website, he could have added that meta tag extension in constructing his website to communicate with the Google bot to say, don't index it, don't copy, I don't want to be part of the search results of Google's search engine. He could have said that. He said he knew 
that uh, that that he could have done that. But still, he didn't put the, not put this up. He didn't make it part of his uh, website architecture to prevent Google from indexing. So this was regarded as an implied consent in the sense that his conduct of not designing his website in such a way that Google couldn't index it was sufficient for us to say that he had impliedly consented through his conduct for Google to go ahead to index and bring it up in its search results. So that was uh, the idea of implied license that they adopted in the internet scenario, which is more in relation to search engines. But what about people like us? You know, we, um, we see all the time, even in, you know, WhatsApp or any other social media these days, the ability to share the hyperlink of any website that we see. Um, The ability to share is just so common these days that we don't even think that it should raise any copyright issues. But the fact is that it does raise these copyright issues. So hyperlinking, of course, in the US, I think hyperlinking is not regarded as the exercise of the uh, of the right of communication to the public under the US law. I, I could be mistaken, but that's my impression of it. But in the rest of the world, even including UK, EU, um, hyperlinking is regarded as the exercise of right of communication to the public in uh, relation to the copyright work. And therefore, every time you hyperlink to a particular uh, link, that exists on the internet, you are exercising a right that is restricted to the copyright owner, for which you need, like I said, either their consent, or you should be able to say, I'm doing this because this context is covered by one of the exceptions, like criticism or review or something like that. So if you don't have either of these, then we need to be able to explore whether implied license can help in making sense of this hyperlinking situation. So what I have argued in um, my book is that when a person places their content on the internet, the things that they should be aware of by now, because the internet has been in existence for about 20 odd years. So browsing makes several copies. They should be aware that browsing happens. Streaming, to some extent, you know, if you have a freely available video on the internet, then somebody else being able to stream your content onto their monitor without more, without downloading, without making more copies, then that should be within the awareness of the copyright owner. Hyperlinking and this idea of indexing, which uh, our field versus Google brought into um, the uh, spotlight. So these Three actions, hyperlink, browsing, hyperlinking, and indexing are three very basic actions on the internet, which any person placing their original content on the internet should be able to know that this is what is going to happen. And if they are aware that this is going to happen, then to that extent, if, if they, in spite of knowing that they, that they have put up their um, copyright content on the internet, then it does convey, their actions do convey um, that they, they may have impliedly licensed their content. Now, 
one has to also look at a couple of other circumstances. Now, in spite of putting my content on the internet, I might still be able to say that in my terms and conditions, um, which you know, not many of us actually click through and actually read what the terms and conditions are, but it's possible that in the terms and conditions, I can restrict the way my content is used by the users. So um, I might put my content on the internet, but limit the, the, the way it's used by way of my terms and conditions. Whether the, the terms and conditions will be respected and how I'm going to be able to enforce those rights is a different question. Enforceability, practicality of it is a different question, but as a matter of law, whether you are able to say that I limit, in spite of the fact that I've opened it up, opened up my copyright content on the internet to everybody who has access to internet, I then go ahead to confine the particular uses to which my copyright work can be put to the specific items that I have stated in my terms and conditions. I can, I can do that. Uh, law allows me to do that, I think. Should the law should allow you to do that? I think this is something that you can build into the logic of implied license. Implied license isn't necessarily giving everything away. My implied license is dependent on my conduct, and I can conduct myself on the internet in such a way that only some aspects of my work become available to you, and rest of it are not because my conduct tells you, my conduct in writing those terms and conditions tells you that I don't want you to copy and make any use of the content that I put up on the internet. So that's the whole point. You know, I, I as a copyright owner have the flexibility of molding my license on the internet in such a way that I permit only a particular use of my uh, work and not everything. So if I don't put any terms and conditions, if I put everything up on the internet and I just leave it there, then that's your conduct. You know, that that's what you have done. Um, you need to face it, face the consequences. But if you don't want that to happen, then it's possible that you can still go ahead to limit the amount of the extent of use that a person can make. So it's the same thing. You know, all your podcasts are up there on the internet, right? So you have very wisely put terms and conditions of how these podcasts can be, can be used. And I think these terms and conditions are extremely important. They give you some sort of legal protection. Um, and you should be able to say in a court of law that I have already made the, the user know that this is the only number of users that they could have put the content that I've placed on the internet for. And anything beyond that is an infringement of copyright. So um, this is the way you can play with the terms, express terms plus implied license. You can play with a little bit of both in relation to the internet. Um, that, that's how um, implied licenses become very important for us to understand in relation to our interaction on the internet, whether as users or as copyright owners ourselves. So we should be mindful how we protect ourselves. And when we post something online, we have to be responsible about it and make sure that we have the proper statements, the proper terms of conditions or the tools that there are many tools now that you can make uh, password protected content. You can also put in behind some restrictions. So there are many ways that you can use to protect your content online. That's right. That's right. 
I may also add here that you know recent decision of the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union has uh, gone in favor of the users more in the sense that it, it says that if you write in terms and conditions that hyperlinking is not allowed, then if somebody hyperlinks to your uh, the, the content on the internet, then um, sorry, the only way you could have prevented hyperlinking is by putting your content behind a password. So, you know, they, they're making password protecting to be the only way in which you can interact with the content on the internet. And terms and conditions are becoming less and less important in the EU uh, copyright jurisprudence. But I don't agree with that decision. And that decision doesn't apply to the UK um, right now. So I can still hold my argument that, you know, for you to protect your content on the internet, password protecting is not the only way. You should still be able to protect your content based on terms and conditions. You can still expect the users on the internet to be behaved in such a way that they would behave anywhere else. I mean, why, why should internet be any exception? That if, if, if you are going to be mindful when you pick up a, a physical copy of the book that you're not going to be making photocopies of it, um, dreams and dreams of it, why shouldn't you be subject to the same sort of conduct on the internet as well? You should be able to read the terms and conditions. It's not too much to ask for. And it shouldn't always force the copyright owners to push all their content behind the password. It shouldn't force the copyright owners to always invest in these technical protections, in TPMs as they call technological protection measures. You shouldn't push copyright owners to invest in all these methods by which they should uh, um, protect their content. It should all be freely available on the internet. And you should have a way in which users of the internet are well-behaved. They behave in such a way that they would behave anywhere else. Um, so I don't agree with this decision. Uh, but there you go. I mean, the, the highest court in, in Europe has ruled that uh, terms and conditions, um, if you ignore terms and conditions, it's still okay so long as uh, the, the content is freely available. They're asking for more from the, yeah. the content owner, which yeah. is... Uh, if we as humans would respect everyone accordingly, <laughs> yes. the laws would not be that necessary. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, the, the way we mold our internet laws has very much to do with the way we expect our society to be. If we expect our society to be um, free riding, if we expect people to uh, not respect others' rights, then, then, then you are already giving way to a society which is um, which is far less empathetic about others' rights, and and I I think that's the wrong way to go. Anyway, so so I feel implied license in in this sense has a lot of potential in holding people to account to the way they con conduct themselves on the internet, both users and copyright owners, and and I think. This is in line with how law has always looked at the conduct of the parties and to, to inform the decision of the court based on the conduct of the parties in any other area of law. So copyright is no exception. Internet should be no exception either. So I think it's just an extension of the kind of reasoning that we have followed in other areas of law as well. Yeah, that's, um, that's true. That's true. Um, any final words of wisdom? <laughs> 
Um, oh dear. <laughs> um, final words of wisdom. I do, I do hope, you know, my uh, sense of utopia is that we, forevermore, we don't have to be so vocal about doing this and that, you know, giving a 20-page long terms of use saying this is what you can do, this is what you cannot do, blah, blah, blah. I don't think it's worth making copyright owners just so anxious about the way um, their content will be used if they put things up on the internet. Internet opens up just so such wonderful opportunities for uh, copyright owners, and for them to use that those opportunities without the fear of their content being wrongly used by somebody um, to their disadvantage. I think copyright owners um, should be encouraged to put more and more of their content on the internet and the law should develop in such a way that it disciplines the users on the internet in such a way that uh, more and more content is more openly available rather than less openly available. I mean, if, if you are pushing more content to go behind password protected uh, uh, websites, then internet as this, you know, open repository of all that we know in the world will be so stunted. We, we won't have the ability to use the internet really quite to the same potential that it possibly lends itself. So I think pushing copyright owners to write everything, provide only express licenses or use only technological protection measures and passwords to protect their content Law pushing copyright owners to do that is the wrong thing, I think. I think they should put their trust more in implied licenses and make people be aware more of implied licenses, how how their conduct can result in decisions of the court in, in this way or that. So if there is more awareness of that, I think we can have a balanced, we can reap the harvest of internets or prowess in a more balanced way. Yeah. I completely agree. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your experience, your knowledge, your great research. And I um, look forward to anything else you'll be publishing in the future uh, to read and, and to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you, Leticia. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> My pleasure. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Goodbye from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.